heavily, I'm a clown. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin meat smokers. Ben and I had Jeff Booth, author of The Price of Tomorrow, on the show for today, and it was a fantastic conversation. I know I always say this, but you guys are going to love it, and I stand by that trademark phrase because you guys are going to love this. If you haven't read Jeff's book, make sure and check out the link down in the show notes where you're going to be able to find his book. I promise you it is well worth your time. But if you're not convinced, just listen to the interview first and then make up your mind after the fact. But anyways, let's get to the show and I will come back and talk with you guys at the end. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF. Dash 1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Jeff, how you doing? Great, thanks. We really appreciate you coming on, man. I recently read your book, The Price of Tomorrow, and we were just blown away by it. And, and I think Ben connected with you on Twitter with a conversation between you and, and Preston Pish. Ben, what was the context of that conversation? Oh, it was about productivity gains and inflation being brought forward. And uh, I was super interested to dive into uh, topics of the book. And then after our conversation, I, I had to read it because I had heard you on a few podcasts and it sounded so well aligned with some of the things that, you know, Colin and I have been talking about on the pod. So I'm just super happy that you came to hash it out with us, you know? My pleasure. Before we dive into any of that, Jeff, could, would you mind giving us a short synopsis of what exactly your book talks about for the listeners that haven't read it yet? At a high level, you have technology, which is inherently deflationary. Think about why do we use technology or why does any business use technology? They don't use technology to increase their price. So as technology is advancing across the world, it means a reduction of price and more abundance. And technology is now most important driver kind of in the future going forward. And so that means we should be following price declines and more abundance, just like what you see in your phone. But there's a force that's just as big or not as big, but almost as big trying to fight that price decline. And the, that force is central banking policy trying to create inflation against a deflationary environment. And they won't win no matter what. Just about everything what you see on the streets, what you see in the political circles, just about everything is a second order, third order derivative of that. Most important conversation today that nobody's having. In the book, you mentioned the rise in populism, loss and hope for a better future, poor and middle class missing out on economic gains. Is, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, exactly. And not just that, that's a huge portion of it, but that will spill over into geopolitical arena and ultimately wars if it's allowed to continue. And so governments are caught. They've created so much debt. They've run an inflationary monetary policy for so long against a force that is bigger than their ability to stop. By trying to stop it, they're going to take every single one after another government into currency crises. I know I was curious reading your book. What was your inspiration for writing about these things? Was it just studying markets or was it more so studying technology or was it current events? A, a number of things, probably. So I just looked 
forward and I said, how fast technology is I'm in technology all the time, a whole bunch of businesses in technology. And I'm one of the winners as a result of technology. I'm really excited about the companies that I'm involved in, what's happening there, how fast they're growing and everything else. But when I added up what was happening around the world, I looked at my kids and realized they're not going to live in the world that I grew up in. It's not going to have the same opportunities. It's going to look, my kids might be really well off because I'm well off and I gave them an advantage, but there's not going to be that equal advantage for other people to rise up. When a society looks like that, when the haves have everything and the have-nots have nothing, it breaks. And you look through history, it always breaks. So that's the world that we're entering into unless something's done. That's what forced me to write the book. I'll I'll give you another thing that just cemented that. I was talking to let's call it one of the senior policy advisors to the government in in one of the central banks. I won't say which one. And I talked about this thesis, which I've been talking about for the last 10 years. And he agreed with it. He said, yes, technology is moving way more important and it's going to drive deflation. And he said, but what would you have us do? And I thought, what an ignorant answer. This is known to do the short term, we're going to break society instead of try to figure out a way through it. So I said, okay, if nobody's going to talk about this, then I'm going to. One of the things that you mention in the book, towards the end actually, is is some of the potential solutions to shifting the economic paradigm. And and I found it was really interesting. You didn't really mention Bitcoin till almost the very end of the book, which is something that I do a lot in in the work that Ben and I are doing on. I call it shilling them softly. <laughs> Walking people through this thought processes first rather than giving them the answers up front and and letting them ask the questions in their own mind before I present some potential solutions. Was that a conscious decision on your part or did it just kind of happen that way? I wanted to break it down from the fundamentals. I wanted to break it all down from the fundamentals and then provide, okay, now what's our solution set going forward? That's actually what an entrepreneur does in a business, right? Looks at something that's totally broken and says, okay, how do I break it down from the fundamentals? And then if I'm right and build it up into a different way. I don't know if I was trying so much to do that, but people ask me, was I Bitcoin first or this first? And I was always this first and saying, there's nothing else that seems to work, right? And that's by, by coming to Bitcoin. I would say that although I'm a huge proponent of Bitcoin, I'm careful. I love the community for what they think of and how they think about hard money and the future of hard money. I get scared. Many of the community come at it so about the money they're going to create that they prevent the conversation from happening. They repel others from actually listening. So I wanted to open up that dialogue to a point where you could build bridges to open up a bigger dialogue instead of it's Bitcoiners against the world. How has the response been from that perspective to the book, meaning when you show this to somebody in a traditional finance world that maybe hasn't drank the Bitcoin Kool-Aid, what is that response that when they get to the end of the book, when they see that B word, do they just throw it in the trash or have they been like, oh, this is actually really interesting? No, that's why it's worked really well because it forces people to go through the first principles and the fundamentals to get there. And that it also talks about both other solutions and what would we do, right? It talks about all of what kind of the pros and cons of different solutions, everything else. And then it formulates, okay, what's going to happen? One one of the top uh, economists who's tightly in this circle that we're talking about, let's call them against, right? Bitcoiners against. He said to me, he goes, after I read your book, I realized that everything I teach, everything that 
I thought I knew might be wrong. And, and so when you can get somebody to, to say that, and, and it, but, but he also, he goes, it's, it's also disappointing and, and because how could you see it? Others couldn't. And I said, an outsider always has an advantage. You ask deeper questions with curiosity to actually know the answer instead of defend a previous reality. And that's where I would say, if you want to build bridges, you have to accept somebody else might see the world in a different way and debate at a first principles level rather than yell at them. But lots of conversations like that, lots of conversations like that. And, uh, and so it's making, it is making a difference. I'm so glad that you said it that way, because that is the heart and soul of what Ben and I are trying to do. I mean, I, I do think maybe there's a place for some of the, the dogma, but if we want to have the conversation, I think it has to start with first principles like that. And uh, rather than, than shoving your conclusions down people's throat, you have to recognize that they're prone to their own biases, which, which actually, it seems to me like your target audience for this book was the most dogmatic of Keynesians because just the way that you present the information, it's almost undeniable. Like if I, if I was a, a Keynesian economist just taught through the academic system and then was working in, in finance or economic research or something like that today, and I read your book, I would probably have the same reaction. I'd be like, I'm, I'm not so sure I believe everything I believe anymore. The editor-in-chief of the Global Mail, Canada's biggest newspaper, read the book and called me. He said, you have prosecuted this argument incredibly. It's impossible to deny what the conclusions you've come to. You can try, you can go all these different areas, but is it actually impossible from first point to, to actually come to any other conclusion? He goes, the problem with that is it scares me to death because our entire world is built on a different illusion. And how do you get this out to enough people who can take it into a different way? Because all your thinking is almost upside down. When you think, wait, I might make less next year than I make this year, but it would go further. It's a hard thing to relate to. It's a hard thing to think houses don't always go up on a straight line. But nobody asks the question, would they have always gone up if you didn't print $185 trillion of money in the last 20 years? Because these questions don't get asked very often, and we accept a previous reality without questioning deeper, it's really hard for your mind to comprehend. So I thought that was a really salient point that, that he said. And that's actually the point of the book. I wanted to drive people through that so that we could have the conversation. And by the way, like I still get very rarely on Twitter, but people who will not accept it, but they don't give a reason why they won't accept it. They're just so brainwashed into a previous reality that inflation is good, no matter what, it's good. They have a hard time accepting it. I'd love to have a, a live debate with Krugman or somebody, show me your data on why. They use the 1930s example all the time and deflation is bad. You want to prevent it at all costs without going back a number of years before that and, and saying the reason why the system had to cleanse itself and it looks so ugly is because there was a buildup of massive debt and monetary and everything else. And a system had to cleanse itself. And no matter what, that's going to be a painful result. Right. And there's nothing to stop that. It has to cleanse itself. So by masking this situation and making it more and more debt on top of more and more debt, the system isn't cleansing itself, meaning we're setting up epic failure. And that's what scares me. That's actually what scares me. The last thing you want is a disorderly unwind. For all the Bitcoiners who are watching this podcast, the last thing you want is to have 10 or $20 million in Bitcoin and not be able to come out of your house 
how is education run and how do you drive down the road and how is electricity and uh, sanitary and everything else. If there's a disorderly unwind, it's really bad for everybody. I really agree with those premises. That's something that I talk about a lot or, or at least think about a lot. I have talked about it is the if there is a transition to Bitcoin as a money for the globe, like what does that look like? Is it one of these gradually then suddenly things or do you think it can happen slowly and peacefully and a beautiful deleveraging of, of sorts? I think the second thing you said, a beautiful deleveraging is becoming less and less likely. As governments are printing into this deflationary environment and what they think they're doing is just filling the hole of lost demand. What really they're doing is completely transferring wealth from the poor to the rich. And there is no free market anymore. So it's a managed society and there is no uh, free market. And prices are artificially high on one side. And then you drive socialism into an economy because a whole bunch of people that are left out say, well, I need money because I'm left out because the prices are unnaturally high in the first place because you bailed out the, the winners. And no wonder UBI is derivative and you drive political discourse on both sides of the aisle with both sides not being able to pay for any of this. So, but the problem is so immense today and it's a global problem. It's not just a US problem. What people are doing and why they're going to Bitcoin, why they're going to gold is there likely is going to be a disorderly unwind. And so it's going to be gradually then suddenly. I hope that's not the case. I'm still doing everything I can to you heard me on different podcasts, you, you saw the way I wrote the book. I would rather have really great debate with people that, can, that we can try to figure out a way through this, but that doesn't seem to be happening. And you can totally understand, you know, with the rise of populism around this wealth inequality, why ideas like UBI are so sticky. It's, it's almost like we're trying to treat the symptoms of a systemic infection in the body that's manifesting itself on the skin, you know, just by treating the lesions on the skin. That, that's essentially in my mind what UBI is. It, it's not attacking the underlying problem. It's using more of the sickness to try to cure the symptoms. And that's one side of the argument, and you're completely right. So is central bank easing on the other side of the argument. Both of these things to trying to drive inflation into this environment and um, UBI are both treating the symptoms, not the root cause. That's actually the point. Uh, if you play this forward, and for those who haven't read the book, how fast technology is moving and what that means to prices, there's nothing you can do to stop it. All of the, this conversation we just had about these little tinkering around the edges, good luck. doesn't matter. There's nothing you're going to do to stop the, the, the force. So when people talk about deflation and why that used to be bad and everything else and different levers of deflation, debt itself is disinflationary. Because taxes have to go up to pay the debt and taxes slow economic recovery and or people leave the country because taxes are too high. Debt itself is disinflationary and the world has way too much uh, debt. So that alone. Demographics is another thing. Inflationary, disinflationary, younger people spend more and then older people spend less. Economists are looking backwards at the, all of these other levers that used to drive inflation or deflation. And what's happened is technology has moved from a small impact, to exponential and more technology, bigger impact, bigger, bigger, to today it is so much bigger than anybody realizes. Yet they're still using these old archetypes to say how they can control inflation or deflation. They can't. And by the way, two years from now, technology is going to be that much bigger. 
what do you think happened? Like I've run many businesses. What do you think a business does to try to compete? Why, why do you think the S&P is so high right now and Amazon and, and these companies are so high? As you print more money, all the businesses have to drive technology faster. They have to, to try to compete. In other words, they have to take away jobs as fast as they can to compete. Governments, is a, I use this example, it's like they've walked out into the winter in their bathing suit and said, hey, where did that come from? Right? Without being able to see it coming. And they're creating it. They're actually creating the very thing they, they fear most. I love the, the visualization of the uh, droplet of water in the center of the football field that doubles every one minute to help people understand uh, exponential growth. You know, after 30 or 40 minutes or so, it's still just a small pool in the center of the field. And you think, oh, you know, I have plenty of time to get out of here before it fills with water. And then less than five minutes later, you're, you're completely underwater because you, you can't, the, the human mind isn't used to conceptualizing growth at that rate, uh, in the same way that we can't yet understand the implications of how fast technology is growing and how quickly it's changing up the paradigm. And by the way, this is, this is also true. So going up against a system like this, I would say had huge risk or huge personal risk. I'm in technology. I see it all the time. I'm a bunch of different boards, investor in and founder of a bunch of technology companies. And there's many in technology that aren't talking about this. There's many in technology that are talking about this utopia of technology without the connecting the dots that it's not being broadly dispersed to people because of monetary policy. And it doesn't matter for those kind of in technology that are talking about this. It might be all well and good that somebody has a phone today that is their AI assistant and their Google and Waze and Guitar Tuner and all of these things that are free because of technology. And 50 years ago, that person might say, well, they didn't have that, so their life is better. But their life is not better if they can't afford to pay their rent or they can't afford to eat because the prices of the things they need most are going up, going up beyond their control. That is all being driven by artificial stimulus. I think we largely agree with pretty much everything you said. I wonder if this would be a good segue into if I could kind of push back on one of the things in the book, or at least we could kind of, yeah, yeah, please, please, (laughs) we could kind of, we can dissect it together. There's a passage in your book where you talk about the debt that we've accumulated, that the inflation that we've perpetrated has had a positive effect on the economy, right? You know, obviously you're talking about this inequality that's created and all these other issues, but that uh, you know, I think as Preston put it, we brought forward productivity through all this inflation. We've kind of driven it through spending. Uh, you mentioned that you know when the stock market goes up, people feel richer and therefore they spend more, and that's kind of driven the economy. But I would kind of contend that technology is the force which has been improving our lives. It is the driving of technology. It is the deflation that you speak of that has been largest contributor to the improvement of our lives, even over the last, you know, two centuries. Talk about the, what is it? The Wova cloth. What's that? The, the name of that contraption? The the uh, no, the cotton mill, right? To printing presses themselves for books. And, you know, and then we saw cars revolutionize transportation and all these things. I think technology has been the main factor that has brought our lives better. You know, you look around your house and you see your washing machines and your stoves, these things increase our productivity and allow us to accomplish more in a shorter amount of time. I wonder if we could dig into that a little bit. That was specifically, if you look at the data looking backwards, 
infant mortality is down. Wealth in other nations and everything else, maybe not in the U.S. in uh, recent years, a lot of people lifted out of poverty all over the world. All of the charts, if you re uh, read Factfulness, all of the charts looking backwards would look like that. That was a way to say, yes, the world is better as the and accept the fact that the world has been better and lifted out of poverty by that. If you chose 20 years ago to go through, let's say, the U.S. standard the currency failed, it went through a depression and everything else, and we reset the system, it would have slowed a lot, and that pain would would have spread out around the world, right, a, a lot. And some of those things, therefore, wouldn't have happened at that rate. The acceleration of technology, the acceleration of everything, has been boosted unnatural printing and the acceleration of technology has somewhat been distributed around the world. It just can no longer looking forward. It doesn't look the same. That makes sense. That's a, you know, Colin mentions a lot of kicking the can down the, the road or, or preventing the liquidation of malinvestment. And I think that's what you're, you're saying, at least that's, there. That's, you know, what I'm, that's, that's what I'm saying. And right now governments are trying to do the same thing all over the world. They're trying to kick the can down the road, but the problem is it's such a bigger, can. It's impossible to kick down there. Maybe we get away with it one more time, but the cost of kicking can down the road becomes societal breakdown. I absolutely agree. Uh, there's one other thing that's like slightly related that I wonder, because that explanation really helped me kind of get on the same wavelength as you. Our economic systems were not built for a world driven by technology where prices keep falling. They were built for a pre-technology era when labor and capital were inextricably linked an era that counted on growth and inflation, an era where we made money from scarcity and inefficiency. Could you tease out what you mean by an era when labor and capital were linked and an era where we made money from scarcity and inefficiency? Over 50% of Amazon's cost is, uh, is in technology, actual people in technology. Even that is getting replaced with AI. Most businesses don't look like that. It's all the labor. It used to be the labor, right? That was a giant driver of their, their, their cost. But I'll give you a, uh, an example. Shopify. I know the founders of Shopify, really great people. My first business, it took $5 million over two years investment to build technology that you could get on the cloud. The stuff you can get on the cloud right now for $50 a month is a hundred times better than the technology we built for $5 million over two years, a hundred times better for $50 a month. And so you can see it, right? And that technology doesn't require any more labor. That's the cost difference in a very short period of time. And, and that's the abundance. So if you move into what you're saying, I use this example quite often, economics is about scarcity. And I can prove it. The air you breathe is, is free. Why is that free? Because it's abundant. And water in places with lots of water, water is free. Clean water is free. In places where there is no water, water is expensive. So economics is about scarcity or perceived scarcity. If you create a brand with perceived scarcity, you can drive higher prices. And technology is creating everything in abundant, right? And a lot of people mistake this. They say, okay, well, the app on your iPhone wouldn't be supported without advertising. And that's not true. My flashlight app requires nobody to build it. Like once it's built, it's a penny to less than a penny to everybody and it distributes to everybody for free. 
same as your camera app, same as all of this. It's literally taking price. It takes abundance up, price down. There will always be somebody competing for that. It's a coder that can build that. As long as there's money in it, any money in it, there's a whole bunch of people from around the world that will compete to try to, uh, to get into it until there's no money in it. That's what takes the price down. That's what takes the price down in an inflationary world where you're trying to drive prices up. What would your phone cost and everything else in price in real terms? This actually really helps because Ben and I were stuck on that passage. But what you're basically saying is that the profit, human capital and labor, it actually comes from the inefficiency in production. That's where human capital meets the inefficiency in production is where that profit comes from, essentially is what you're saying, right? Exactly. And you're constantly trying with technology to remove that. That's actually why you use technology. Like, why do you use technology in, in your home? You're trying to make your life easier. Right. Because the role of the entrepreneur is to always be seeking the most efficient form of profit margin, be able to better compete in the marketplace. Bingo. So the, the, the faster that we try to drive these forces the other way, the faster you get entrepreneurs from driving price, uh, prices down around technology. The tools we have to be able to, to build abundance today are so staggering. Hard to even keep up with. For me, I'm chairman of five different companies. I'm a, it's, it's moving so fast, a technology that's underpinning most of the world. It's not just in your phone anymore. It's everywhere. And that means prices should be falling everywhere. And what would you say to those who look at this problem and say, well, human capital is being replaced by technology, which I would argue has always been the case, as, as we've just discussed, who say, clearly, UBI is inevitable. What would you say to those people about the economic reality of that observation? And they're, they're doing a jump from this is happening against what I see in the world of prices going up. And I've always lived in a world where prices are going up. So I need UBI to be able to pay for that. Do you need UBI to pay for the air you breathe? And that's kind of the point. Prices should not be going up. Prices should be coming down at a crazy rate. And there might need to be something, I will argue that there probably needs to be something as a transition that we help society transition and UBI might be a way through that. If you put UBI on top of a broken system, you're gonna make the system more broken. It requires more debt, more, you're gonna kick the can further down the road and you're going to lock in inequality to the world. Prices shouldn't be this high. They're only this high because they're being manipulated this high. So if you then say, I'm going to give these people who can't afford those prices that high some money so they can afford those high prices that's high, like, is that a solution? Again, what I'm trying to get to is hard as it is to comprehend because it goes against everything we've always known. Capitalism works perfectly if you let this to happen and the abundance that technology would allow would be broadly distributed because prices would fall along that axis and you wouldn't need the same amount of UBI because we weren't de distorting prices in the first place. This is a tirade that I've been kind of going on recently is that people are frustrated at capitalism. They want socialism to fix it, that they, you know, look at the woes of the world that capitalism has brought, this profit and inequality. And, uh, you know, Robert Breedlove and, and ourselves came to the independent conclusion that it, it's not capitalism, it's, it's monetary socialism. Uh, and, and it's frustrating to me to see all these people saying, no, look, capitalism's broken. How, how do we help them see that this isn't really capitalism at all? 
I mean, but obviously it, your book is, is hugely helpful for that. But in that, there's some people that I think I would be a socialist and everything else. Nothing could be further from the truth. I believe in capitalism, not that it's without its failings too. It's just, it's the best system around. I can't think of a better system than capitalism to be able to do it. What we're experiencing is not capitalism. Why would people listen to leaders who would spout out, I will make your life better? Because they're in pain. And why would people listen to somebody that says, it's not your fault, it's that person over there? Because they're in pain, right? And and they'll believe that. Hook line. 99% of people will believe that hook, line, and sinker, and they won't question why. Right? That's why I wrote the book, right? Because it gives a framework that people can question this deeper. And hopefully you can actually have a whole bunch of people talking about the first principles and the things that we must do. And instead of getting caught in, it is so easy. It is so easy to look at somebody else without empathy and label that person and say they're like that. That's what scares me today. That's the thing that scares me the most. And on both sides, it's just ignorance. It's not, uh, there's a lot of people in, in this community that, that would say those boomers, those people, those everything else, and say they're taking all the wealth and it's not, they don't know they're doing it. Do, do my parents know that they were part of a system? This No, they don't. Um, do, do most people know that they're part of a system that is just that driving this inequality? No, they don't. There's, there's probably a few that do. There's probably a few even in the central banker community that are scared to death and saying, what do we do? Yeah, and I've, I've talked to some of them and they're like, how did we screw this up so much? And, and, and I've, I've heard the Bitcoiners say, you know, it's the boomer's fault. And it's, I, I have a different take on it, my, much like you. I say, don't hate the player, change the game. Exactly. It's the game that's broke. I love that, that, that example because it's not, it's not the people. It's the game that's broken, right? It is exactly that. Now, that's when you're talking about first principles. You, instead of debating a person, you're debating the principles of the game. And it is the game that's broken. A worthwhile conversation for, for you, on not just on this podcast, but on, on many of them, is, okay, if we agree that the game is broken, it needs to look like Bitcoin or some other thing that has a hard currency pegged to, to the world and everything has to do. How do you transition to that? Let's spend all the time talking about the transition and then you're going to get a whole bunch of that can't happen that because you're, you're changing the rules of the old game. Unless you talk about a transition, the transition is going to be a hard break. But that's actually why I said in, in policy circles, I would love to move this up to a debate on let's talk about the transition. Let's talk about is there a, is there a transition? I would love all the intellectual energy to go into that instead of bad game, bad game, bad game, that is going to do a, a force <laughs> reckoning, they are reckoning that's, that's coming. Right, because you could argue that now more than ever, we should be deleveraging the risk moving into this paradigm shift. Uh, but exactly the opposite is going on. Uh, we're, 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 we're increasing blocking. our leverage. We're increasing the leverage. We're increasing the problem everywhere. The ultimate failure, and so people ask, right now, without monetary easing, we would have a depression. At, at a scale that would be way worse than the 30s. All that debt would be wiped out through failures. Banks would fail. The world would stop. It would be so ugly. And so that's what governments are trying to stop. By trying to stop it, they're creating a bigger animal and that's coming. So people ask me all the time, deflation first or inflation first. Inflation is a monetary policy. 
governments can create inflation. Central banks at some point can create inflation with enough helicopter money, UBI, what have you, bunch of warp stimulus. At some point, they typically get it wrong and their currencies break and it goes into hyperinflation. And then on the backside, we'd have deflation because deflation is the natural order of technology progress. But, uh, um, but if you wanted to, how do you transition from a slow deleveraging so that you could allow this to happen. And it would actually probably have to be faster than a slow de deleveraging right now because the problem is so big. That's a lot of food for thought there. I actually want to change gears a little bit and get your opinion on the growth of the financial sector. Recently, like over, I would say over the last two or three decades, the financial sector is the fastest growing sector for corporate profits. Why do you think that that is in the context of what we're talking about now? Because Ben and I have some theories and we'd be interested to hear what you think. It's because that's, that's sitting closer to the window of policymakers, right? And so they're bailed out first. And I wrote about this in the book. Every time a government essentially says, okay, that's okay. That bad behavior is okay. They codify it into behavior, right? So let's use an example of, let's use a business example. Right now, you have a whole bunch of people saying, how dare you bail out those companies? And they should go broke and they have no cash on their balance sheet. They spent all their money buying share, share backs and they don't have any cash on the balance sheet. But you have a system, Ben, you said this perfectly. It's not, uh, don't hate the players, hate the game. You have a system that the Fed is saying, we are going to do everything we can to make your cash worthless. If you hold your cash, we're going to penalize you. We're going to negative interest rate you. Or you're going to not be able to compete by holding cash. So what would you do as a CEO? You'd spend that cash on where, where it has the highest, best return. And that might be share buybacks. When you've set up a system with such instability, all these people are unemployed if I don't get a bailout. And the government's forces their hand and it just precipitates on it. It just keeps on reinforcing on itself. And then, oh, oh no, I know what we're going to do we're going to decrease interest rates more and that'll solve the problem, right? <laughs> it's just ludicrous. And so when you say the financial engineering of society, that's what you're kind of moving on up. That's all that's happening. I don't know if you've read Rana Fawur's book, Makers and Takers, but I read that and I, I came away with a sense that she's very intelligent in terms of her observations of these things, but her ultimate conclusions are that the financialization is the source of the problem. And obviously, you know, I, I take it one step further and say, no, the financialization is a symptom of the underlying problem. Um, and she gives an example in that book of Apple, I believe it was in 2013, borrowing billions of dollars. Um, you know, Apple is very cash rich and they have all of this money, mostly in offshore accounts. And you can make the argument that they don't want to repatriate that cash because they don't want to have to cover tax liabilities on it. But they're, they're borrowing all of this money, despite the fact that they're cash rich, in order to pump the value of their equity because they're buying back stock. Oh, they're doing sorry. it again right now. All of the companies right. are doing it again right now because at negative interest rates, why wouldn't you? Right. All and, and when I see that, I, I have to ask the question, why? Right? Because we know the cash is devaluing. And like you said, the negative interest rates, the inquiring mind should be asking, why is this happening? Partially, my theory too here is that these entrepreneurs that are pumping the price of their assets, of course, they have the incentive to pump the price of those assets because they're large holders of those assets. But at the same time, they're providing a different service to the consumer than they would be normally just as 
entrepreneurs in their typical business underpinnings. Now they're providing financial instruments that are sound stores of value, have long-term growth prospects, which in an inflationary economy is in high demand, becoming a different type of entrepreneur, which is they're providing sounder money, sounder monetary instruments to the consumers by pumping the price of their assets. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I totally agree. There is no free market pricing right now. It's all distorted. And as a platform owner, you're consolidating wealth like crazy. You're just driving all of this distortion. As the billionaires in, in the US, they went up by $552 billion in a two-month period in COVID when you had 20% unemployment. And it's a, it's a result of this. And, and if you look at, again, look at the S&P and look at the, at the platform companies, they consolidate wealth faster as a result of all of this. It's just a natural byproduct. If you were Jerome Powell today, if I'd bestowed that position of the head of the Federal Reserve, Don't want and you, <laughs> I know, that's my point. Uh, and you came out to the world and said, listen, I'm just going to stop printing money. We need this short-term pain. And then you, what, you get assassinated or whatever. Do, do, I feel for those guys. You know, I was, I was watching even the, you know, Hank Paulson and the guys after the 2008, and he was like vomiting in his office, having realized that the weight of the world was on his shoulders. Yeah, so that currently <laughs> under, underlines 80% of world trade, right? And, yeah. uh, and here's the thing, by doing that, your currency value would grow. You would continue to be the de default currency. By not doing it, by not stopping this, currencies are going to unwind all over the world, and Bitcoin, will, uh, Bitcoin or something like it, will emer emerge. I suspect Bitcoin will emerge as a result of it. But those are the two, only two options. It's such a big problem right now. How can he come out and say, "Okay, we're going to let the system fail"? You move into a massive depression. One of the problems, though, is that their mandate is for stable prices, which obviously you and I would agree is a terrible policy because stable prices aren't desirable. Falling prices are desirable. We want things to get cheaper so our lives can improve, as we've been discussing this entire time. So what, do we have to legislatively remove that mandate of stable prices? Do you think that would help or is that just a silly? So maybe, but, it, but, but we should have that conversation that you just had. That's kind of what I'm getting at. The, the, the debate should be on how do you transition? The debate shouldn't be on anything else. Because it, I would love, I would love some, a policymaker to come out and say, to tell the truth, to just tell the truth. Here's where we are, right? Here's what's happening. It's a big ask. Shouldn't we demand the truth? Here's where we are. There's a whole bunch of, instead of placating the people that say, oh, we can give you something for nothing on both sides and we can continue this game, right? There are going to be new people elected, um, maybe not in this election or eventually that will rally around this at some point, right? And somebody will tell, they'll tell the truth. My book is taking off, by the way, and it's become a, a bestseller around the world because of that because a lot of people are looking deeper and they're saying this thing that I feel in my life everywhere, this thing, this book just connected with why I can feel it around me. I've wanted to ignore it for a long time, but this book it's, it's connected it. And by the way, a lot of people that in the Bitcoin community, they've known this for a long time. 
they might not have known how fast technology was advancing, but they were certainly sound money advocates and everything else and, and, and against distortion of, uh, of policy. So they've known this uh, for, uh, for a long time. And going down that rabbit hole just kind of keeps you going down that rabbit hole and you just, whoa, why does it look like this? It's going to change. More and more people are going to come forward. If they ever call you in to, to advise the Federal Reserve or the, or the central banks of the gov- you know the world, uh, I would implore you to mention to them that the two goals, stated goals of the Federal Reserve are probably both completely fucking moronic. Okay. Full employment is stupid because I'd rather have you know my wife at home not having to work, for example. They, they actually achieved this. They've got all the wives out of, out of the home and working, uh, and then stable prices, which is just pure insanity. So, so I'm 100% with you. It's funny when you say that a lot of people, and probably on your podcast, everybody knows this. It's funny when you say that full employment and everything else. My goal is not to work for 80 years of my life or 60 years of my life so I can spend five or 10 years in retirement and, so I say, and safely not work. My goal is to get more for less so, and free my time. You, you had the quote from Keynes about the, what, the 15-hour work week in your book too, I think? Yeah. So that should have happened this year, right? That's yeah. a, that he, he predicted that happening this year, what he did not predict. And this is Keynes that a whole bunch of Bitcoiners would be totally against, right? This is Keynes. What he did not predict is a perverse monetary policy that consolidated wealth in the hands of few. What uh, most Bitcoiners don't know about him is that he hated inflation. He, he, he talked about how it would destroy society over and over again. There's a bunch of quotes about him saying how terrible it is, how it, just, it debauches, you know, society itself. It's, it's frustrating. Totally. Um, and he also came out with the bank or instead of the U.S. Yes. dollar peg mm-hmm. too, right? And the trick so, and dilemma. Exactly. So that governments couldn't use essentially game theory. We found a tweet from the St. Louis Fed, uh, the St. Louis Fed, um, that said the a, that a decentralized cryptocurrency would solve the Triffin dilemma for that right. currency. And they you specifically that? mentioned Bitcoin too. Right. I, I'm not sure, Jeff, if you're familiar with Ben and I's project. It's called WTF Happened in 1971. It's a very simple Socratic presentation of data. Is, it, is that yours? Mm-hmm. That's our I website. I didn't realize that that was yours. It's fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, man. But we're trying to do the same exact thing that you're trying to do with your book. We're just trying to meme it rather than uh, become a, a bestseller, which is well-deserved on your part, by the way. We, by the way, you, you, know, you know this from my book. I could care less about selling one. I don't need any money sure. from a book. Sure. Um, that's not the, the point. I need, this, I need a lot of people talking about principles. So anyways, I loved WTF 1971. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I spent a lot of time combing through the conversations happening around the internet, uh, around our website by reverse tracking hits that are coming to it. And we have really interesting insight into, because we leave the question open-ended, what happened? And it creates a lot of conversation and we see a lot of bad answers. We see a lot of answers that are completely off touch with reality, like answers like, and some of them are just silly and probably on purpose, like, oh, this band quit making songs that year, or oh, this movie came out, or um, just silly things, Disney World opened. But then we see things that are very popular punditry talking points like globalism, or peak oil, or Reagan deregulation, and and all of these things that in and of themselves, they they take a lot of study and a lot of research to sort of unpack. The real problem that I see, you know, having this conversation is that people don't know 
the source of these problems and they don't know. So how, how can they even begin to understand the solutions um, when they're so misguided about the, the causes? Well, the beautiful thing about what you, what you did there, and that's actually similar to what the book does, right? It forces people to ask a deeper question. And, and even those people that believe, because I've seen some of the comments on different posts that you, even some of the people I shudder to think, because how could you believe that? How are you not looking deeper? But if you believe it, okay. What will happen is so many people, so many other people know exactly what it was, right? And they'll correct them. And they, those people might look deeper from that. That process of discovery is, uh, and, and the way that you've constructed it uh, in that process of discovery is, I think it's, it, that's what it said, congratulations, is brilliant. And because, because it forces pe- people to go to the root of the problem. Well, it was an accident, if we're being honest, so. All good. <laughs> The parts I, I thought were so interesting in the book because I, I understood a lot about this deflation was when you actually talked about the impacts of some of the technology that are coming. So maybe if we could just briefly go, you know, you mentioned AI, which is, is, is really hard to kind of wrap your head around. 3D printing was another one. W- what is your outlook for some of the really cool things that we're about to see in the future, Jeff, and that give us a little bit of hope for, <laughs> for the t- coming times? You know, I, I only took a couple of them three or four of them in the book, and I'm closer to a bunch of others as well. The meta themes, kind of energy and AI, are, are deflationary across everything. And then there's some industries that are going to be completely disrupted. Why we use Google is we get more value from it, even though it's free, of course. Why we use Amazon, we're celebrating deflation in everything we do. So if you take a look at AI and health, Right, so I speak to governments here in, in Canada on, on this. But the top researchers in cancer research were attracted to Canada because we had a one-payer system. And so because of essentially free healthcare, you attracted data sets and you stored those data sets of cancer. And the top researchers in the world were attracted to Canada because they could look at those data sets together and do better research on it. If you take that analog, to the best researchers today, it's all around AI. And data is the thing that matters the most. And as you consolidate data sets into a whole bunch of different data sets, the AI learns way faster than we can. It sees patterns that we can't see, and it does it at no cost and, and gets better and better at an exponential scale. So if you play that forward into what's going to happen in health, um, what it means is we are going to get way better outcomes for almost no price. My Apple Watch knows more about me than my doctor. If Apple said today, we know your heart rate all the time, your exercise, your sleep patterns, everything else, and all those data sets are telling us about this, about you, we know your EKGs and everything else, we know all this, just kind of, it's coming to us all the time. And those systems are being put together to provide better information. And if you gave us your genome, we could give you a whole bunch of predictions. And if you told us what you ate every day, we could give you a whole bunch more predictions or everything else. If I trust the privacy of their network, I would do it. No government can stop me. So that's actually what's what's happening in technology. Technologists that are going to aggregating this data is moving so fast that you can't stop it because it gives such great outcomes. And that's the point. You get abundance and it costs way less. There's uh, a Google Health in their algorithm are beating all sorts of uh, radiologists today by, by a landslide in detecting cancers way earlier than, than would otherwise be detected uh, with way less errors. And so 
instead of going to school to read radiology for eight years, there's an algorithm that does it way better. And I would ask you as a, as a individual, if that algorithm today is way better and it's going to be a lot better next year because of more and more data cycles, do you want to choose the free one that is way better? Or do you want to go wait in line for a doctor with, with errors? There's nothing that governments can do to stop this technology game. And it should be bringing abundance to our lives. You could question the time frame. Different industries are going to be different, too, but the trend is going to be constantly deflationary and abundance. I can remember when Uber first came out uh, and a lot of local governments were blacklisting certain areas where the app just didn't work at all. And most people that I would see um, that were using the app at the time would have rather walked to the edge of the blacklist just to hail an Uber rather than have to deal with the, the inefficiencies and the potential price gouging of a traditional taxi cab. And or I, I remember a decade ago sitting in a college classroom and learning about the way that Amazon was disrupting logistics and, and this, of course, this was before, you know, the guaranteed two-day shipping time and, and some of the just incredible things that Amazon has built out since then. And I look at how much it's changed our daily lives even now. I, I look at how much I have started to rely on that in, in projects that I'm doing. I'm thinking, oh, well, I could just get that on Amazon and it'll be here in, in two days. The, the amount of abundance that that's added to my life is almost incalculable. So what is valuable in it, what, what becomes valuable in a world like this is the information and consolidating the information. And that information, same reason Google is valuable, same reason Amazon has 600 million SKUs all competing for your attention. It's the information of those SKUs it's a, that you're monetizing on. Ben, you asked me to talk about the 3D printing. A good friend of mine actually up here at my cabin, uh, we have a boat together. Uh, he just uh, 3D printed um, a wedge for, uh, for better surfing. It cost him $1.83. And that wedge uh, to buy is about $800. It works perfectly. For $1.83 on his $1,500 printer, it sits in his uh, house. But more importantly on that, now that this digital representation of that wedge he just uploaded it to one of the sites. Anyone in the world can print that same thing for $1.83. Next year, it'll be a dollar. Right? And next year, it'll be better. And there'll be a whole bunch more people uploading images, just like the information on Google, that will print things in your home. That abundance is coming everywhere. It might not be widely distributed today. It might not. You might not see it. Now you think about consolidating that information and creating a Google-like company around consolidating those images, it looks exactly the same. Very cool. What, a, what an awesome conversation. <laughs> yeah, uh, all right, Jeff. So if you could let the listeners know where they can follow you, we're obviously gonna put a link to your book down in the show notes so people can check that out, but let the viewers know where they can keep up with you if they want. Probably best is Twitter, just at Jeff Booth on Twitter. And then if you reached out there or DM me there, then my personal website is jeffreybooth.com, but it's just, kind of some of the companies that I'm helping and over there, but probably Twitter's best. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time today. This was awesome conversation. Awesome. Thanks very much. All right. Welcome back guys. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation 
we sure did. Don't forget that you can find all of the episodes of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber at bitcoinechochamber.com, or you can find us on pretty much any of your favorite podcast catchers. And while you're listening, if you find yourself, keep coming back for more. Please subscribe or give us some stars or thumbs up on whatever platforms it is that you're listening to. Those go a long way to helping us grow the brand and get better guests on the show. If you're listening to us on Spotify or iTunes and you're not able to click any of the hyperlinks in the show notes, you can also find those at BitcoinEchoChamber.com. And if you guys want to get in touch with Ben or I about the show, if you have questions or comments or you want to be a potential guest, you can email us at BitcoinEchoChamber at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at HeavilyArmedC and Ben is at MrCoolBP. Our DMs on Twitter are always open and we're happy to talk with you guys anytime. If you want to hear more from us on a regular basis, you can subscribe to our newsletter or join our Discord. You can find links for that down in the show notes as well. But I think that's about all I've got. Don't forget to check out River Financial. They are an awesome company and they have really big things planned. So if they support your state, highly recommend you check them out with our promo code. You'll get a week free of zero fee Bitcoin trades. Might be worth checking out if it sounds interesting to you. That's all I got for this one, guys. Thanks so much for listening and I will see you in the next one. 